Welcome to episode number 70 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. Reformation Roundtable is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. And the following is the audio from our Lord's Day service that took place on October 24th, 2021. During this audio, we hear the preaching of Les Doyle on Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25 on the covenant of marriage. If you'd like to join us, we meet every Lord's Day morning at 9.30 a.m. For the most recent times and locations, visit lewiscounty.church, and we would love to have you join us for covenant renewal worship on this following Lord's Day morning. Enjoy the audio, enjoy the sermon, and we hope you join us. Our meditation in preparation for worship is coming from Jeremiah 31, verse 7. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. I'm going to use the to the word Bible reading challenge again as we look at our exhortation this morning. Uh, This week, if you were following along in our to the word challenge, which Again, a plug for that. We have those uh, cards out here at the entry. If you want to join us at any time, not that you have to start from the beginning, you can just jump in wherever the date is. It's a great, great reading challenge to get into God's Word. This week we were, um, we were in the book of Numbers quite a bit. Very exciting, right? <laughs> Very exciting. Book of Numbers. Um, maybe not known as the most exciting book in the Bible, but in chapter 14... We are told that then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Wow. Here they were rebelling against Moses and Aaron. The people, after hearing the report from the spies that were sent into the land of Canaan, decided that they wanted a new ruler. They decided, This is going to be too hard. We want a new leader. They had just been bouncing from one miracle to the next with God sustaining them all the while during their trek from Egypt to the land of Canaan? Did they so easily forget that they were whipped, beaten, and abused by the leaders in Egypt and their demands for the Israelites to make bricks? They were slaves. Did they forget how the Egyptians despised them except that they wanted them to stick around just for their hard labor? After their journey out of slavery and all that they had witnessed through the power of God on this journey, one report of this fierce army in Canaan, and they're ready to rebel. Every single spy, save Caleb, that's where you got your name, Caleb, and Joshua, okay, they were the faithful ones. They, everyone except for Caleb and Joshua gave a bad report of the land, convincing the heads of the tribes that were with them that it was too much to overcome. There was no way that they could succeed, and they should just head back to Egypt. Oh, that's called quits. Let's turn around. I suppose that we should really, we shouldn't be surprised 
we had many stories. There were other failures. There was other grumbling that we'd seen on that journey. But still, they were right there. They could have claimed the land with God's blessing if they had just listened to Caleb and his charge. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go out at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. He knew that God was with them. He knew that they could do this, and yet they rejected because of their fear. So the question I want to ask this morning is, are we a rebellious people? Are we as stubborn and stiff-necked as the Israelites? I'd like to say no. But I think if I know my own heart, and I think if you know yours, we know that we have to be on guard against this rebellious spirit. It creeps in. God has been so good and is so faithful that even in the midst of great trial, we can bless his name and be grateful to our creator for his great mercy. So we must not be like the Israelites and their grumbling and their rebelling. We must not quickly forget the work of our Lord and all that he has done so that we may petition the King of Kings in prayer. So as we reflect on that, let's just confess our sins together. So as you are able, please kneel with me. Later in Numbers 14, in chapter 14, the scripture says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Good morning. 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 Genesis 2, verses 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him <clears throat> excuse me, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds and the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless this time this morning. Lord, bless our ears and our hearts to hear your message this morning that you have for us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'm not ill, but I do have a residual cough from that uh, C thing out there. Um, So I apologize for me having to clear my throat every once in a while. And I I keep thinking that I have have my holster on, and uh, actually I probably have something more dangerous than that. I have a... I have a cordless microphone, which means, you know, I can um, come out here and I'm going to try to stay tethered to, my, to the pulpit here. But anyway, Joe, Joe 
demonstrate a lot of faith in putting this thing on me this morning. Now, the title of the title of the message this morning is of, of covenant and, and marriage, and um, I'm not going to spend honestly a whole lot of time talking about covenants because they're kind of they're they're built in and hardwired into the things uh, our biblical study, <clears throat> and on marriage as well. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine that um, everybody, most most folks in here know, and some folks are even related to, maybe, good friend of mine. And as I talked to him, I, I told him, he said, well, what are you preaching on on the 24th? I said, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm in Genesis 2, so, but I'm going to talk about marriage. And he goes, wow, you're kind of preaching to the choir there, aren't you? I said, well, I said, yeah, I am. But nonetheless, that's the message that is in Genesis chapter 2. And he said, but wait, you, you guys have a whole lot of children in your congregation, and the children aren't excused. They stay in here with us the entire service. So a lot of the message today is it could be deemed um, a reminder and maybe even a review, but for, certainly for our young folks as well, this is what we're, what we're talking about today is foundational, and it's fundamental, and it's the message. It's not a message that, uh, it's a message I was involved with, but I pray that I would be faithful to the the, uh, leading of the Holy Spirit in this. So as we look at this, and we look at Genesis 2, verses 15 through 25, um, we see God issue a command, and a command that the man and the, woman, the man can eat of any tree in the garden except one. And we'll talk about all that next week. But co- covenants are not merely contracts or promises. They're, they're, they are relational, and they're relationship actually under authority. And they have both obligations or stipulations and rewards. And the terms and benefits of the relationship are spelled out, and so are the consequences if the relationship is violated. But what is perhaps most significant about biblical covenants is that when God enters a covenant, he must condescend to initiate it. He sets the terms, he provides the benefits, and he executes the judgment when the covenant is violated. And in the Bible, we, we have primarily two types of covenants. We have a covenant, uh, what we call a covenant of works, that blessings are offered in return, and in return works are performed. And failure to perform these works, to be faithful to them, to be obedient, cause curse, or curses. You know, we clearly see this when we see God with Adam and God with Moses. Do this and you'll live, do that and you'll die. And the second type of covenant is the covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, the great king, not his vassal, that undertakes to secure the blessing for the vassal and he risks the penalties himself should the covenant be broken. We see this beautifully displayed in Genesis chapter 15 with the Abrahamic covenant. Most of us have just read that covenant as we do our to-the-word reading. And the covenant of grace is also the character of the new covenant, established in Jesus Christ and proclaimed in our gospel. 
So as we look at the covenant of creation here, in this portion of Scripture, verses 15 through 17, there is, you know, scholars and academians love to argue about things, and they love to... um, they love to you know, opine about this and that and all kinds of things. And so you'll see a bit of dispute sometimes whether or not there is a covenant of creation here with Adam. I'm treating it as a covenant myself. <clears throat> we see this as the initial covenant made with Adam. And as well, Romans chapter 5 makes it clear that Adam entered, entered in that covenant as a representative of the entire human race. We know that, right? His blessings or cursings would fall on all of us. And the blessing was implied, the eternal, the promise of eternal sinless life in fellowship with God. The curse was death. The stipulation was to refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as well as working and guarding the Garden of Eden. And here is the first commandment in the Bible that concerns life or death for good or evil. And I'll deal a little bit more with this next week when we get in when we move into chapter 3 and talk about the fall. But in verse 18 of our portion of scripture this morning it says, then the Lord God said it is not good for the man that the man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. You know, and this may come as a bit of a shock to us, maybe after we have gone through Genesis 1 and, and moved into Genesis 2, that we, we see this re- repeated uh, pronouncement by God as he creates the universe that it is good. And he creates, he does these things, and every one of them are good. But we come to verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good. Adam is alone, and it's not good. And it's the only thing, in God's opinion, so far, that isn't good. The idea of good here describes that which is appropriate and fitting within the purpose of creation. The man being alone was not good because he cannot do all that God had planned for humankind. All that God, uh, to fulfill the purpose of God in creation. And as Adam began to function as God's representative in the act of naming the creatures God had created, I only imagine how well aware Adam became of how alone he was. You know, this is an elephant, this is a hippo, this is a pig, and all of that. You go through all that, and you see these, these creatures, these light creatures together and all that, but yet when he completes that task, which I imagine took a while, when he completes that, he looks around and goes, where is my companion? Now I know that can be a little, it, it, that's something to think about and meditate on. Because we know that Adam was in fellowship with God. That he walked with God. And you go, well, <laughs> what more would you want, Right? Well, obviously, God had had a plan. And the plan was not for man to be alone, was for man to have a like person in his life. And in the, in being alone often is a negative concept. 
for the full life we know is found, we know that here in our body and in the church of God, that full life is found in community and relationship. It makes us think of Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, say, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone. Woe to him who is alone. When he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. A woman is called Adam's helper, Ezer. In Hebrew, which defines the role that the women, the women will play, the woman will play. And in what way would Eve become the helper to the man? The term means help in terms of aid and support. Remember, we had just all just read Exodus 18.4. It says, Moses spoke of God and his help who delivered him from the sword of Pharaoh. And there's no sense derived from the word helper linguistically or from the context of this portion of scripture in the garden narrative that the woman is a person of lesser value, just that her role differs. Now that's important, and we know that. Again, like my friend said, aren't you preaching to the choir this, uh, today? Well, I am. But the message, the message is clear. That wives are to submit to their husbands. Luke, Luke spoke of that. Uh, and Joe prayed about it. But women are not of lesser value. And that's, that's, a, lynch, that's, a, that's a foundational thing to consider and remember. And in the biblical model, a helper is an indispensable partner, required and needed to achieve the divine commission. We understand and we see that the woman as helper will play an integral part in human survival and success, right? Um, that's... That's a no-brainer, and I'm stating, or hopefully not overstating the obvious, but it is. What the man lacks, the woman may provide, and vice versa. And as Paul said concisely in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 9, he says, The man was not made for the woman, but the woman for the man. The woman makes it possible for the man to achieve the blessing that otherwise could not, he could not do alone, and obviously the woman could not achieve the blessing apart from the man. We learn in these verses that woman was made for man, she was made from man, and was giving to man. One of the greatest gifts, certainly, that man could receive. And in my reading of this, uh, one of the commentators was was making a point, and his illustration was uh, a riddle. And he cited an old riddle, and I don't know, maybe, maybe the youngsters have laid it out on their parents. But oftentimes, when a child brings a riddle to you, sometimes you know the answer to the riddle. But yet you'll refrain from offering the answer. Not me, because I always want to demonstrate how intelligent I am and how, and how quick-witted I am. But some parents who are really sensitive to their children, they'll play along. So the child, the, the example was the child comes up and says, what is like half the moon? And the parent, playing along and wanting to allow the child to do the reveal, goes, well, 
he th- I'm think he the parents going to think of round things that have kind of an orangish tint or whatever. Maybe it's half an orange. The child, nope. How about half a basketball? Nope. And finally, the parent goes, well, tell me, what's like half the moon? What's the answer? The other half of the moon, right? And, that's, and the illustration was this, but what is most like a man? A woman. And what's most like a woman? A man. We're looking at this compatibility. We're looking at this, this likeness, Right? And men and women, but men and women are different, and viva la difference, as the French, French say. Long live the difference. But they are also more alike than anything else in creation, really. In verses, in today's verses in 18, 21, and 22, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The most important way in which men and women are alike is that both are created in the image of God. This explains why they are fit companions for each other, and the animals were not fit companions. In the strict sense, okay? We, w- men and women are made in God's image. That's a fundamental uh, a likeness, if you will, if that's even a word. And because of this, they were both placed under the moral command of God and thus given moral responsibility for their choices and their actions. Now, I'm not talking about responsibility here. And I'm not talking necessarily specifically about accountability, at least not yet. As we're going to see and look at next week, they were both guilty of disobeying the command of God and were therefore judged by God for their disobedience. Similarly, but there are differences. And we're going to see that in how God engages the man and the woman next week. And a second important consideration for men and women being alike is that both are objects of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And for those of those of us who were here last week for when Tyler was up here uh, preaching, he made, he made uh, just a wonderful point of that. That we are, we are made in his image and we are also alike objects of his grace and objects of his love. That's, that's a, an important thing to, to remember and put in the back of our mind as we look at all these things. <clears throat> in the Bible, the human family is introduced as a deliberate parallel to the divine trinity. And the relationships of husband, wife, and children are similar to that. Theologians speak of the essential trinity, which the Westminster Confession of Faith defines as three persons in the Godhead, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Theologians also speak of the economic trinity, in which although... They are one in substance, equal in power and glory. Various members of the Godhead deliberately and willingly submit themselves to another in the work of redemption. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. 
The relationship is parallel to that of the man and woman in marriage, for as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And we see that as well in Ephesians 5, and 24, which says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit to everything to their husbands. Um, I'm not going to get into all the details and the specifics of that. Tyler, we're marching in Ephesians with Tyler, and he's going to get to that. Um, my intent today is more of a 30,000-foot flyover, if you will. But in view of these texts, it's very difficult to see how the so-called biblical feminists can insist that these relationships here have been abolished. And they do. They call themselves biblical feminists. And they argue that submission was part of the curse and now abrogated by Christ's atonement. But I think it's rather significant that the subordinate relationship of wife to husband is found in Genesis first, not after the fall, but before the fall. That's established. This hierarchy within the family is established before the fall. So if that's your reason that wives submitting to husband is no longer applicable, that it was a cultural thing or anything like that, we know, we know as Bible-believing Christians that that, is, if that doesn't work, that you're just plain wrong, that your reason is absurd. Now, I want to stress that this relationship is between a man and a woman within marriage. I think it's important. And because of the deliberate divine parallels within the church as the family of God as well. And nothing in Genesis suggests that every woman is to exist for every man, still less to be obedient to him. Even in the case of marriage, the submission involved is voluntary. That's what my note says here. And you go, wait a minute, Les. Husbands or wives are to submit to their husbands. Well, I say that even in the case of marriage, the submission within the marriage involved is voluntary in this way, okay? No woman is obliged to accept a proposal. But if she does, and she is a Christian woman, she must know that the pattern for her relationship to that man is found in Genesis chapter 2, where God said that he would make a helper suitable for Adam. And if the woman, if she cannot be a helper to her man, or does not want to be, what's the conclusion? She should not marry him. Period. Now, this is, the message, this is the message for our young folks as well. Because when we get toward the end of today's message, we're going to talk about what we can do in, in, in the world that we're in. And I just want to plant this seed before I get there. That, listen, the time will come, young men and young girls and, and boys and girls and all that, the time will come when all of a sudden the opposite Sex will start to look be attractive. You will like, boys will like a girl, and girls will like a boy, and all of that. 
But the time's also coming as well when your parents are going to be talking to you about that. It's, it's already happening in here. That's why my friend said, really, you're going to preach at this church, right? Yeah, absolutely. The time will come when your parents will not demand or um, do a, 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 an arrangement for a marriage, but they, are, but they are going to talk about the importance, the vital importance of being equally yoked. And I don't know how many marriages I'm aware of, honestly, where a believing, one of the, one of the, the man or the woman were believers, the, the other person was not, but the believer expected to change the other person. And I've seen disaster after disaster after disaster with that. So you all, all you, guys, all you youngsters, be ready for this because it's important. And, and it's going to be part of what we need to do as, as believers. In verse 23 now, we come to um, the narration has steadily progressed toward the pinnacle where the man actually speaks for the first time. Up till now, we know that he's named the animals and all that, but we haven't heard his voice in, in the Bible. It's been God alone up to this point who has spoken. And in the man's naming of the animals, there was no recorded speech, but when the woman is presented, the man exclaims in a very poetic way, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And as we've, we looked at two of the, the ways in which men and women are alike, made in the image of God and the objects of the grace of God, there are differences, and certainly there are transparent physical differences. And the role and relationship of leader and helper is indicated implicitly and explicitly in the, in the book of Genesis. Remember, we started this Genesis, the messages in Genesis, by looking at God and, under, trying, and seeing how God has revealed himself to us. See, and looking at the attributes of God. So it's, it's very theocentric. It's very God-centered, as it should be. And as these roles of the leader and helper are implicitly and expi- explicitly in Genesis, we see the hierarchy of creation. We've already looked at it. We see God, the creator. We see the, the creature man, the creature woman, and the created animals, which includes the serpent. But in the fall, as we'll see next week uh, specifically, all this was reversed. This hierarchy that, that was installed at creation that makes sense to us, God, not God, we see this reversed. We see the created woman listens to the created serpent. And we see the created man listens to the created woman. And while all this has happened and is going on, no one listens to God, the almighty creator. Now, as far as differences go, we can't exchange the roles of the man and the woman as though they were equal. Okay, and this is important. 
We cannot exchange the roles of the man and the woman as though they were equal without doing violence to, to the Scripture. Again, a lot, oftentimes the message that we, that we consider on the Lord's Day here, and then during our week as we read through the book of Numbers, or whatever, we, we come to these places where worldviews collide, where they clash. And that's where the war lies for us, is in this, in this clash of worldviews. So what do we as evangelical Christians do? What do we have to do? What is necessary for us? We abide in Christ. We study His Word. We pray His Word. And we stand on the authority of the Word of God. And the priority of man's creation is important for recognizing the authority fellowship in, in the garden that was, that was installed by God here. That's important. And what do we do? We go, okay, we don't try to rationalize it within ourselves because I'm going to tell you what, we're, we're almost inevitably going to veer down a wrong path because we're sensitive and, and this and that and the other thing. But rather we go to the authority. We go to the authoritative word of God. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul says this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Boy, that Paul was a tough dude. He's hardcore. And the thing is, is that Paul is not establishing that this truth because of a feeling he has, because of his certain mindset or anything, but rather as we finish the verse, in verse 13, here's Paul's reasoning, here's his justification for what he just said, which I'm going to tell you right now is contrary to everything you're going to hear out there in in the woke world. Paul says this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. The appeal is to Scripture. The appeal, the appeal is to the Word of God. And we're beginning to see already how the challenge to God's Word affects who we are and affects our faith, affects our walk and all of that. The woman having her source in the man suggests that the man is the leader and the authority. To me, it seems very clear. But ultimately, of course, the source for man and woman is God. We know that. And the text does not suggest that the man alone has access to God, but rather the man alone has the, what, the greater responsibility as the firstborn for the couple's response to God's charge, which is coming up in chapter 3 of Genesis. And this is confirmed by the quizzing of the man first about their collective action. We'll see it in verses 9 through 12. Of Genesis 3. For the burden lies with the man as the responsible party for the activity in the garden. Okay, so we've heard all the jokes about Eve, right? You know, we've heard all the jokes about that. But, you know, this is a serious thing. 
And as, um, you know, I was a career soldier. I'm retired Army. Hoorah. But I'm going to tell you, I learned as a young, as a very young leader, one thing. It was pointed out, to, it had to be pointed out to me a couple times. But one thing about leaders, no matter what, in what context you're in, it does not matter. If you're the leader, you're responsible, no matter what happens. And I apologize to our young folks in here, because you're not seeing that demonstrated on the national level or the state level or anything like that outside the church. You're not seeing it. But here's the thing I learned. Good leaders are good delegators. But the thing good leaders cannot do is delegate responsibility. You cannot delegate responsibility. The responsibility is going to be yours. You know, and I don't need to get into the litany and the myriad of examples that are out there right now that we're all witnessing of the lack of responsibility and the lack of accountability by people in positions of authority. Okay, that's, I'm, I'm kind of getting riled up about that thought. But it's important for what we're looking at today. Genesis 1 through 3 is, is you know, it's, it's the authoritative fountain of the Apostle Paul for his soteriology and, and his um, instruction on household and ecclesiastical order. We see Paul again appeal time and time again back to Genesis. And that's important. We need to remember that right now as we, as we wrap this up here. We see Paul in, in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, 11 and 15, Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 2. We see Paul address and give instruction on, we see his soteriology certainly, but also instruction on the household and the, and the church. And of course, our Lord constantly referred to the scripture. Constantly. Jesus, the scripture in his day was the Old Testament. You have read. You've seen this. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the author of the word, saying these things. Specifically talking about marriage, generally. Marriage is a picture of love between one man and one woman. And it's at the heart of the biblical story of God's love. Therefore, marriage matters for a host of reasons. It matters because God created it. Not society... And therefore, God alone defines it. That needs to be in us. That needs to be strong in us. Because the challenges are there. You you know they are. And we see part of this as as an overall rebellion against God in our culture and society. It matters because it is a picture of God's Gospel love, which is hardwired into us as Christians. Us who are Bible-believing Christians. It is hardwired into us. When you change or redefine marriage, you've gone a long way towards defacing and obscuring one of the most significant, common grace pointers to the love of God in Christ. So 
while we want to defend marriage for all the typical and good reasons that conservative Christians will defend marriage, perhaps the most important reason is this. Marriage is one of the primary pictures of the gospel. The story of God's love is a story about marriage. And as we look at the marriage story, we see it structured by covenant. No accident. Marriage itself is a covenant, and God is pictured as a betrothing God. And God gave a covenant to Israel. Christ gives the covenant to the church. So weddings and covenants both speak of distinctive, particular love, don't they? Weddings and covenants. On the one hand, on the one hand, I'm to love my neighbor as myself, which means there's a sense in which I'm to love all people, even women. On the other hand, I've covenanted with my wife, with Kay, because I love her in a way that is distinct from all others and is particular to her alone. And as we continue to look at marriage in Genesis 2, when God brought the first woman to the first man, he did not merely provide Adam with a suitable helper and companion. God also established marriage as the first and most basic of all institutions. Genesis 2, we're barely out of the gate. And before, before, other insti- before, before the church, before a synagogue and everything else, marriage is established in Genesis chapter 2. By God, defined by God, one man, one woman. A unique love, a distinct love, a love that is particular to those two alone. And then an extension as the family grows. Long before there were governments and and hospitals and schools, all of that, there was marriage. And we we need to hold on to that. We need to understand that as we prepare, as we are in the midst of battle... Spiritual warfare with the, with the evil, the darkness and the rulers behind all the things going on as we war for that. We need to understand that and it needs to be in us. You know, from the, for instance, from the authority of the father developed a patriarchal system. And then out of that tribalism and then out of that monarchy and then out of that democracy and all these other things. But it started with the institution of marriage. The need for the husband and wife to care for their children and to raise their children in the knowledge of God it did lead to synagogues and churches. But it started with marriage as the fundamental and righteous institution that God, God installed. It doesn't take a whole lot of exertion for us as Christians to see the derivative nature of all these institutions that are around us and how they're fundamentally um, uh, an extension or an outgrowth, outcropping of marriage. I think you see my point here. And therein lies a huge problem. Marriage has been in the sight of Satan and under direct attack from the very beginning, certainly from the fall onward, but the devil was contemplating things before, before he encountered even Adam in the garden. I would submit to you that if marriage falls, 
the institution of marriage falls, then all these other derivative institutions are doomed. In my reading the last two, three, four weeks or whatever, um, I came across an article by James Montgomery Boyce who lists four directions. Of course, the, our brother Boyce has uh, passed away now for a, few year, for a few years, but nonetheless, I think his, the list that he, uh, these four directions that refer to a contemporary attack on marriage, I think they're still certainly applicable so I'll list the four of them, and I'm not going to belabor them. But marriage is attacked by the what, the, what he was called the rampant new hedonism. And it's, he, he claimed it was a new hedonism only in the sense that, it, they're not so, that it's not so subtle anymore. It's really in your face. And hedonism says that the chief goal of life is pleasure, and it is to be pursued no matter what damage it causes, no matter what the cost. So think about it. We're, that's the society we're in. That's the culture we're in, is this hedonistic culture. You know, if you, if you have TV at home and you happen to be watching a show, they got these things called commercials. And these commercials are going to come on and they're going to do their very best to convince you how much better your life would be if you just bought this product. You know why? Because it's new and improved. Now, that's kind of a weak example, maybe. But that's, that's the nature of what's going on out there. And you know, the hedonists will even try to act like they're, uh, they're somewhat sensitive in that no matter what you do and who you do it with, it doesn't matter. But as long as you're nice to them, as long as you have whatever your version of love is with them. So we see... That is one, one aspect of things that will challenge and try to disrupt marriage. The other, the other is widespread acceptance to adultery. You know, and I'm not going to talk about that today a whole lot, just nothing beyond this. I have read instances of, of so-called psychologists and people who encourage adultery in a marriage because it'll bring new life to a, a marriage that is struggling. Now, my goodness, how flipped is that? How demonic and how sinister is that? It's just, it's just appalling to think about. But yet that's what's out there. We see it, we see it in, in entertainment on the television and all that. And it's an assault, direct assault. On marriage, the institution of marriage. A third avenue of attack is the ease of divorce. There's this thing called no-fault divorce that came in America, came about in my lifetime when I was a younger guy. I think in 1969. I'll, I'll tell you in a second here. But no-fault divorce just means you can dissolve your marriage for whatever reason. There doesn't have to be a reason for it, pretty much. That's what it's saying. And I'm going to tell you, if you look back to read some of the Jewish laws as to what the men could do, that wasn't in keeping with God's institution of marriage. The, uh, you know, these, these just... These reasons for divorce that a man that a man could divorce his wife 
And now we have this no-fault no divorce, and I, and I came across this interesting little tidbit here. The first modern no-fault, modern now, no-fault divorce law was enacted in 1917. Guess where? What happened in 1917? There was this revolution by the Bolsheviks in Russia. And the primary goal of the Bolsheviks was to break down the traditional bourgeois structure of the family in order to equalize the status of men and women. This... That has been the goal of feminism from the beginning. And in America, talked about the divorce rate here. I got some, got some statistics on it. But the divorce rate typically ran about 1%, which is one divorce for every 1,000 in the population. And it remained less than 2% until 1940. The first year the divorce rate exceeded 3% was in 1969, the year California became the first state to adult to adopt no-fault divorce. Now, the divorce rate has lowered, but here's the other thing. Here's the, here's the rub. Marriage, the rate of marriage has lo- been lowered too. And the final pathway or avenue for the attack on marriage is the legalization of abortion on demand. Of course, again, I'm, I'm leaning on James Montgomery Boyce here. But I agree with him. The law, the legalization of abortion made it, made abortion a private affair between a woman and her doctor. And it's detrimental to marriage on a variety of levels, but one of them is now because it's a private affair, the man in the, in the relationship, the father, will he be, be deprived of his right to defend and protect his child? You can see how that will affect the institution of marriage. And, oh, by the way, parents, your daughters, if they become pregnant, can, can go seek these, these things out on their own without any... Uh, without any uh, information going your way, without you being told. I mean, that's how far we've come in this, in this attack on marriage. And the weakening of the family because of the relentless attacks just continues to escalate. So how do we recover from this? Okay, let me wrap this up. And I was wrestling with all this this morning, Kay, I'll tell you, just up till this morning even. The first thing I want to say is that there is no neutrality. There is no neutrality in, in this attack on marriage. You can't, you can't be Geneva or Switzerland on this thing, folks. And the other thing I would say as we think about our tendency is our tendency is to talk about what's wrong with everything. And then try to, try to come up with something we can do to address everything out there. How can we fix it? We did it on Thursday night. We talked about, we talked about different things on Thursday evening. And you know, we were talking about institutions out, out in the world and dealing with them. But I would say this. There's no recovery unless Christians first recover a sense of what God intends marriage to be, and then sets about 
to achieve that in their own lives, in their own communities. Okay? Again, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I'm going to tell you what. We, we want to look out and see, the, see what's wrong, and then we, we agonize over the fact that we can't figure out how to, how to deal with it or fix it, when really, I'm going to tell you, like my friend said, wait a minute. You're going to talk about marriage to a bunch of folks who are in solid marriages, who have solid family structure, but their children are in church with you on Sunday, aren't they? I say, yes, sir. This is a church that won't have a youth pastor. Not because they're necessarily bad or anything. But, but the, the children are in here with us. They're in here watching daddy and mommy worship. They're in here listening to some uh, red-faced bald guy preach about certain things. But, and and they're, they're, they're faithful and, and, they, and they, they're, they're steadfast in that because they're seeing their parents do it. So as we, as we think about all the mess and all the wrong and all the, the error and the evil and everything that's being perpetrated out in this predatory landscape of ours, the recovery starts, starts in our home, in our homes, and the recovery starts in the church. It, it's, it's, it's really that simple. But here's the, here's the thing. The institution of marriage has, has been under attack, and it will, it, it's going to continue to be under attack. You know, and I'm going to tell you what, it's not the government who is going to resurrect the institution of marriage. It's people who have the gospel of Jesus Christ in their heart. It's people who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Because I'm going to tell you, I, I, when I was looking at this, I'm thinking, you know what? More than anything, the innate selfishness of the human heart has to be broken. You know, it's a, it's a noxious weed that, in which you have to attack at the root. We're familiar with Jeremiah 17.9 because we know that Dealing with that noxious weed does not occur naturally. For God says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? (laughs) You know, what an indictment, but what a truth as well. So if you belong to Jesus Christ here, that noxious weed that, that has contributed to your doom has been dealt with. And it's been dealt with supernaturally. It's been dealt with in a way that we are, as human beings, incapable of dealing with. And if, listen, if anybody ever, if you, any of you all ever take issue with something I say up here, I would love to sit down and talk to you about it. And you can, you can convince me otherwise, but, you know, we'll have a cordial conversation about it. Christians under, and when we think about this now, one of the things that the RRT, you know, we're going through this book called Masculine Christianity. And, it, and it's, not a, it's not a fluffy, you know, float along the clouds type of book. It's, a, it's, a, it's an in-your-face book. And there's a lot of terminology in there. I'm going to tell you right now that people outside of our family, 
the family of God would find absolutely offensive, absolutely unacceptable. You know, we as Christians understand and, and know that when we talk about service, that service does not equal servility, in which I use the word servility in the sense of that the, the one serving is of lesser importance. We know that that's not the case. And you know what? We can't help but think as we think about ways in which we individually and as families and as corporately as a church can war against this basic, this attack against the first institution created and defined by God that we think about our Lord Jesus Christ when challenged, actually on divorce by the Pharisees, in Mark 10, verses 6 through 8, said, here's what Jesus said. And I would, and this is what we need to hold on to. This, is, this needs to be our response. Not, well, I think it's okay. And, uh, no. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. The Lord stand, stood on Scripture, and we should be standing on Scripture as well. We should be prepared to defend this. Because I'm going to tell you what, any measure, any measure of compromise to marriage being one man and one woman, any, any degree, any infinitesimally small fragment of deviation from that, you're setting yourself up, you're vulnerable, you're susceptible, and you're in trouble. You're, you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're in trouble if your intent is to serve God and to defend his truth. No compromise, no tolerance of, of, of uh, unbelief, no tolerance of of lies or anything like that. We are people who know the truth. We stand on the truth because it's vital for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would um, touch our hearts today, continue to um, allow us to express your love to one another and to those beyond these walls, Lord, that we would grieve and, and have a burden for those who are lost, for those who have who have received the lies from hell. And Lord, we pray that we would bear good fruit for you this week. We ask for your mercy in all of our lives, Lord. We ask you to forgive us our sins and to protect us from the evil one. We do it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. At this time, we're going to get ready to approach the table. As we get, to, we get ready to come to the table, I want everyone to be reminded of the peace offering that this represents. We know that our hearts are wicked, Through the blood-bought gift of Jesus, we can come and fellowship and eat with him. We've been called to worship. We've confessed our sins and been forgiven. We've been consecrated through the washing of the word, and now we feast. This is a joyous and wonderful thing we do together as a body. We encourage all who love Jesus and been baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to come. If anyone would like to talk about this more, are interested in being baptized in the communion of saints, please talk to myself or Joe. We'd love to discuss it further. 
This is a culmination of our service, and we want to enjoy it together and joy with all of you. Remember and believe that God died to save sinners. Remember this truth today, and always your life will be changed by his Spirit. For all who belong to Jesus and bear his name, come to the piecemeal to be fed and loved by Christ Jesus. We come and welcome Jesus here. We commission you the charge. We have a charge. And from what Les has given us today through the preaching of the word, we know that God has defined our relationships. God has defined our roles. The marriage covenant is being attacked, and it is more than just a mere contract. This is a relationship. This is, this is a meaningful relationship brought into bond with a man and a woman. And we know that it's being attacked on many sides. And so our charge is to bring up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's to be faithful husbands and wives. And it all starts here. Like he said, it starts in the home and it starts in the church. And may we be faithful to act accordingly to God's word and to be faithful to the covenants that God has given us. The benediction is this from 1 Peter 3-5. through Please stand. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.